Welcome to Women in Sustainability, the podcast where we speak with some of the world's foremost female professionals from across the sustainability field, with me, your host, Emily Fripp. In this episode, I'm talking to Frances Seymour, a distinguished senior fellow at the World Resources Institute, and prior to this, Director General of the Centre for International Forestry Research, C4. As a key player in the international policy arena, Frances regularly leads the discussion on forest governance issues, commodity-driven deforestation, and the potential of forests to climate change mitigation and adaptation. Together, we'll be discussing how the role of women in this sector has changed, lessons learned, and words of wisdom for those following in her footsteps. I'm extremely happy to have her here with me today to share insights, stories, and experiences of women in sustainability. Frances, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with me today and to talk about women and sustainability. In a world of international forestry, you are, to me, a figurehead, and I think you've been an inspiration to myself and others in this field um, for for many years. Um, You're currently a Distinguished Senior Fellow at the World Resources Institute, advising on Global Forest Watch, the FOLU, the Food and Land Use Coalition, Cities for Forest, I'm sure there's many other things. Um, But I think I first really came across you in the world of C4 um, and met you in Bogor, um, probably in the in the cafeteria there and not lying by the swimming pool, which was my favourite hangout place. But um, where under under C4, I mean, I mean, you you really sort of grew C4 and put it on the on the global map, I think, and, and with your strategic direction and your position as a leader on the policy research and convening on forests and climate change, I think that enabled the whole sort of C4 budget and presence to really grow and um, develop. I mean, 2012, I read that you were awarded the rank of officier of the prestigious order of the agricultural merit by French government. That's kind of an achievement. Uh, Recognition of your leadership and significant accomplishments in the fields of forestry and climate change. So your leadership and relentless advocacy for the natural world is evident in everything that you've achieved and continue to achieve and, and as I've said, you're, you're a source of inspiration for many, myself and many others. So I hope I've truly embarrassed you with that lovely welcome. But, <laughs> yes, you've done a good job. <laughs> thank you. So, so thank you for joining us and, and sparing a bit of time with us today just to sort of talk about this really important topic of, of women and sustainability. Um, and I thought we'd just go back to the basics, the beginning and sort of, you know, how on earth did you end up? in those high-level positions, where you are today? And, and did you always think that you would be in this sort of global leadership role in forestry? I mean, or is it something you aspired to, or did you just sort of end up in it? I think it, it just sort of turned out that way. Uh, I mean, I, I got into the international forestry thing when I was, you know, graduating from college and thinking about graduate school in the early 80s was when the international community had first you know, discovered tropical forests and how cool they were with biodiversity and indigenous peoples. And, you know, the Amazon is in flames and we need to do something, you know, to, to save the rainforest. And so I decided that that's, you know, something I wanted to be a part of. And um, 
having thought as, as a high school student, I wanted to be a wildlife veterinarian as a respectable pro- profession that allowed you to be outside. Um, when I made my first trip to the developing world and discovered that actually it wasn't a shortage of wildlife veterinarians that was the issue, it was politics and economics. So I went to graduate school in public policy and um, tried to figure out how I could fit into this picture and then uh, just got a really lucky break with the Ford Foundation to go to Indonesia and start working on those issues. And so Indonesia was the first place um, and, and sort of love. I think I can share that love of a crazy country but one that's also super inspiring and stunning and beautiful at the same time as having some you know really prolific sort of challenges in the past um and I think it's amazing to see great progress being made um in that there's there might still be issues but I really feel that there's progress in that space um with respect to sort of women and sustainability, how have you seen your role, um, involvement, influence in this space change over the course of your career? You know, when I was first starting out, um, certainly all the big name leaders in the field were men. But I had the privilege of working at a series of organizations that were led by women. I mean, even when I was at the Ford Foundation was when Susan Beresford took over from Franklin Thomas as the head of the Ford Foundation. And then um, when I was at World Wildlife Fund, Catherine Fuller was CEO. And after C4, when I went to Center for Global Development, Nancy Birdsall, you know, was still at the helm of that organization. So I I certainly had some examples of of women in in senior leadership roles. Having said that, I think that the the forestry um, profession or natural resources, international forests and climate have perhaps lagged a bit behind, you know, some other segments of society. And so you know, even though there there are uh, a number of female leaders in relevant international institutions, it's fair to say that the the sort of elite policy circles that work on tropical forests and climate change still seem to be predominantly male. Um, you know, I have to say one of the the more difficult situations that I worked professionally was in the. Uh, when I was at C4, which, and C4 was part of the you know CGIR, the the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research, and the the 15 research centers that were part of that, and you know in 2006 when I was appointed, I was only the third female director general in the whole history of the system. So wow. that you know 15 centers times 40 years, you know that's not not very many. And I, you know, would often find myself um, in meetings where all the directors general and all the board chairs would get together. So that's 30 people in the room and at most three females, you know, in that room. And the men would call each other by our first names. I mean, it's like they couldn't tell us apart. And, you know, it's completely, you know, consistent with the research that you really have to have a critical mass of women or whatever other minority it is in the room before you're seen as an individual as opposed to just a representative of that group. So that that was challenging. Yeah, I've, I've kind of, from the timber trade business and then even in some of the agricultural space that we're now in, you know, I I've, I've think being in meetings where you know that the real meetings and discussions happened on the golf course the night before or the morning of, and it's almost a token gesture um, that can be there. I, I, I think it has Change, but like you say, there's still pockets of that um, sort of sort of yeah, the way business is done kind of conversation. 
Totally. Um, and I, you know, you, you often find out that, you know, a conversation has happened, you know, among the guys, and then they'll bring in women later on, you know, to seek advice or serve as consultants to implement the agenda that they've <laughs> decided on. Um, and actually, the other the other phenomenon is that I think, you know, as a step towards success, there has been a heightened awareness now. And so there is a norm that we no longer have all male panels at conferences and stuff. But, you know, whenever there's an international forest meeting, suddenly I start getting all these emails. Francis, can you moderate this panel? Can you? And you, you wonder, it's like, hmm, that, that they just realized late in the day that they needed a woman and, you know, they don't really care what I have to say. They just need, need somebody it, on it the do, panel. It does sometimes so. feel like there's a tick box, doesn't it? And it's kind of, it's still yeah. not quite just being asked because we're good at what we do. Right. But it, it's progress, you know, at least people are sensitive to the issues. That's, you know, that's a step. <laughs> And and I guess where where do you think in the you know where's where's been the most defining moment so far? Do you think where was the sort of sense of great achievement in this space of sustainability or and or sort of with with respect to gender issues? Well, I think as you stated at the beginning, I, you know, I was extremely fortunate to take over at C four just when tropical forests importance to the climate change agenda was being recognized, you know, because 2006 was sort of, you know, the year of the Stern Review and the, you know, what became Red Plus was, you know, entering the negotiations for the Bali COP. And so it was a perfect moment to mobilize the um, considerable assets of C4, which included, you know, 10 years of research on underlying drivers of deforestation. So to marry that capacity and C4's legitimacy as an international institution, not like a U.S. NGO, for example, and, you know, research capacity with that policy arena opportunity was just a fabulous, you know, um, chance to, 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 to make a difference. And I guess... Um, managing to establish the credibility of C4 and, you know, and non-trivially establish my bona fides as somebody competent to lead that. I mean, sorry, I have to tell the story. So when I interviewed for the C4 job, one of the board members um, asked me something like, so Francis, you know, do you think it's going to be a challenge for you taking over leadership of this organization as a female without a PhD? And I said, uh, yeah, I think it probably will be, you know, but I'm up for it. And, you know, when I assumed the job, I think there were quite a number of C4 scientists who, you know, were looking at me with raised eyebrows. It's like, really? She doesn't have a PhD. What does she know about any of this? And over time, I could sort of see the change in their faces when I asked intelligent questions about the methodologies they were using in their research or something like that. Or you know, it turned out that my strategic advice about how to get attention to the research product that they were um, uh, producing and its policy relevance and gradually established that credibility um, with them and then, then the broader community. So that you know, gave me a lot of satisfaction. It was not about me, but it was, you know, an ability to be effective and leverage that opportunity to really raise the profile of of tropical forests in the climate um, arenas and create space and opportunity for um, members of our staff and our our partners to really engage um, in these important issues and make a difference. And I think that was one of the big, um, the big movements of that time really was, was, like you say, linking decades of, of, academics and and research and field research with a policy agenda um 
speaking very, very different languages, um, working on different time frames in different spaces and with different frustrations. And I can see some of that coming to the fore now where you have companies, more companies, bigger companies, traders coming on. So there's almost a, an extra dimension and element to come into the, to factor into the conversations with a sort of change of pace and speed and an expectation, I guess, coming in again. Yeah, I mean, and I would say that this current moment right now, um, with the sudden surge of corporate interest in, you know, pursuing, quote unquote, nature based solutions and, and, you know, purchasing forest carbon credits, there's a a sense of excitement that's born of both um, cognizance of both the upside opportunity, wow, maybe this time finally we'll mobilize significant finance for tropical forests, but also the risk. It's like, boy, this could go wrong in a hundred ways. And we really have to, you know, have our our, our fingers in all the, the, the holes in the dike, you know, to make sure that, you know, rights are respected and that, you know, there's not greenwash and all the, all the, the, the various risks that need to be managed. But, you know, it sort of has a similar feeling to the feeling that we had in the sort of 2007, 2009 period when there was this real sense of opportunity that then diminished over time when the Red Plus agenda for various reasons was, you know, um, not realized and, and superseded by by other events. So um, it's, you know, it's it's another exciting time to be a part of it. Definitely. And, and, I mean, the issues facing women in in this arena, they're still there. They're still very prevalent. I mean, at all levels from um, indigenous communities, farmers, through the system and through to policy level. Um, Where do you see the most significant ones sort of still being at the moment? I mean, are there pockets or is it sort of generally throughout? Well, I mean, I think the the challenges are are kind of... um, they manifest, they manifest themselves in different ways, um, depending on your sort of role in the ecosystem. I mean, for, for, um, women, for example, who are in roles that require field work, I mean, it continues to astonish me that even, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, I'm with a group of guys on a field trip and they can't believe that I would be capable to, you know, walk up a hill and carry my own backpack, you know, and, in situations like that, inevitably, I beat them to the top of the hill, you know, but it's like amazing that a woman could do that, you know, and so that it's kind of annoying. Um, so then um, there's sort of the issue of institutional leadership, and, and I don't think this problem is unique to the sustainability field. Um, but I think in a lot of elite uh, sort of policy circles, the mental image of a leader is a tall white guy who's very self-confident. And I can't tell you how many times I've watched selection processes, you know, play out where there's a perfectly competent female with more, uh, you know, female leadership styles, and yet the job goes to the, you know, tall, white, aggressively self-confident white guy. And uh, and there's sort of a catch-22 because to the extent that women exhibit those self-confident traits, you know, she's labeled, you know, too aggressive or, you know, otherwise, you know, abrasive or something. And so it's, you know, it's, it's really a catch 22. So that's, that's annoying. And, um, you know, I hope we can get past that. I guess the other thing that occurred to me that um, may be somewhat special to the sustainability field is that I do think there's still a presumption that women in these fields, you know, sort of broader natural resources management type issues 
tend to, you know, they're, they're assumed to be focused on the social sciences side of things or being gender specialists or concerned about community dynamics or, you know, that sort of thing. And I don't mean to trivialize those topics. Those are very important. But, you know, people sort of express surprise when the woman's specialty is a technical one or economics or mm-hmm. high policy kinds of discussions. So I think that that's still a, a barrier that we need to, to surmount. And I, I don't want, you know, there have been progress on all of these fronts and, um, you know, increasingly those barriers are being broken down, but, um, you know, that some of them still persist. Yeah, no, completely agree. And, and so sort of, if you were going to give some advice to, to women working in sustainability field and sort of how to get in there and where to go, what, what sort of words of wisdom would you, would you sort of leave us with? Um, a couple things. Um, one is, and again, I don't know that this is unique to the sustainability field, but um, don't assume that merit is automatically rewarded. Um, that you you actually have to proactively put yourself forward and um, proactively network so that um, you know people think of you. You know when there are opportunities. Um, advice I give is to take risks that that pull you out of your comfort zone and force you to perform in ways that you're not even sure you're up to performing so take that international assignment or you know have the bravery to raise your hand and ask a question in front of a room full of 500 experts or you know whatever it is at your point in your career that you kind of need to take a deep breath and just put yourself out there and and that in turn you know builds confidence and i guess you know for me like during my tenure at C4 you know, when I started out, you know, I had a fair amount of anxiety about public speaking, both in terms of being on top of the content of the broad range of topics that C4 scientists were working on, but just, you know, the self-presentation in public speaking type events, you know, and, you know, after six years, it was a piece of cake. You just do it often mm-hmm. enough and <laughs> you just like anything else, you, you, you get used to it. So I think um, to the extent that women are tend to be on average, again, a little um, less confident about putting themselves forward and, you know, maybe prone to imposter syndrome, you know, worrying that, oh, there's going to be somebody in the audience who knows more about this than I do, you know, get over it and and just practice and, and really, you know, start developing some of that confidence that then, you know, will enable you to put yourself forward in a, in a way that, you know, doesn't suggest that you, you know, have self-doubts about your ability to do whatever it is that needs to be done. Yeah, very, very true that we do seem to walk that very fine line between uh, sort of coming across as confident but then very quickly being seen as abrasive or, or sort of cocky or, or sort of bossy, or oh, you're bossy, right. that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, I'm just asking you to get something done, but, you know, or, or making a point. But it's, a, it's yes, if I was a man, I wouldn't get those comments so much. Not that I do, well, Rose. And the thing that... Hmm? Not that I do from my team. Oh. <laughs> no. Well, I have to say, and I don't know if you want to include this in the podcast or not, but... One of the things that was particularly mm-hmm. disappointing um, when I was at C4 is some of the most difficult pushback I got was from female staff who really took umbrage of having a woman, you know, curtail, you know, something that they wanted to do that wasn't, you know, consistent with our agreed strategy or something like that. And uh, so I, it's almost I really like think it's imp- you've, you've broken the broken the sisterhood somehow. 
Right. Well, but I guess, you know, the, the, the parting advice I would give is I think for all women, we're still at a point where solidarity counts a lot. So, you know, if you're a junior person in an organization, you know, cut the female leader a little slack and assume that, you know, she's doing her best and may know more than you do about, you know, what's what's a particular, you know, why a particular decision needs to be taken in a particular way. If you're, you know, um, in mid-career, cultivate that network of other women so that, you know, you have a, a sounding board mm-hmm. or others to sort of compare notes with. It's like, am I imagining this or do we always get shut down at the, you know, staff meetings or whatever? Um, and then if you're a leader, you know, be generous with your time in mentoring um, uh, more junior women. And if you're on a selection panel, you know, push to make sure that there's at least one woman on that short list and that it's really clear why she doesn't get the job if she doesn't get it. An enormous thank you to Frances Seymour, a distinguished senior fellow at the World Resource Institute, and thank you to all of you who've been listening today. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, and we hope you can join us soon for another episode. Episodes come out on the 8th of every month. Next time, we'll be chatting to Dr. Junzu Zhang, the lead for the China-UK collaboration on international forest investment and trade. Continuing this discussion about the latest developments, news and initiatives from across the world of women and sustainability.